Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Well, this is it, my very last episode on Roman Catholicism. So my hope is that along the way, you've learned a lot. Uh, maybe you've learned a little bit about uh, interpreting the Bible the right way. We talked about exegesis versus eisegesis. Exegesis is going to the Bible and by studying what the Bible says, what do, what knowledge do we get from the Bible versus eisegesis is kind of having this idea already in your mind, having something that you want to find in the Bible, and then simply going in and trying to find anywhere that that could possibly be be, uh, be found. And so that would be the difference in exegesis and eisegesis. So hopefully you've learned a little bit about that, and you're able to kind of pick up on that when you hear people that are, are using the Bible um, to support whatever claim they're they're making. Uh, are they getting that from the Bible, or are they going into the Bible trying to find it somewhere? Um, also, I hope you've learned a little bit about church history and how to look at church history. Uh, from the Catholic perspective, they just claim that all church history is theirs. If church history agrees with the current Roman Catholic Church, then that is valid. If it doesn't agree, then they must have been a heretic or whatever, or, or we must reinterpret their words to somehow align with what the Roman Catholic Church teaches today. Whereas from my point of view, from the Protestant point of view, when we look back in church history, we, we realize that those people were dealing with you know, the different issues, different debates in their own day. And so sometimes we can get a little bit off balance in what we're uh, what we're writing and and things like that. And so when we read church history, we can we can go to them, we can read what they have to say. And then if we find that it's consistent with scripture, we go, wow, that is great insight. Uh, you know, maybe I wouldn't have ever seen that in the Bible before, but now that they bring it up, man, that is that is really good stuff. And then at the same time, with the same author, we can say, "Man, this is just off base. There, um, you know, this doesn't really, uh, it's not really consistent with Scripture." So that's how we can look back at church history. We don't have to make everybody, you know, a a Baptist or a Presbyterian or whatever in church history. We can realize that there were differences along the way. What we have to go back to is scripture. Now, the danger in doing this podcast, you know, I, I want to teach why I believe what I believe, and hopefully that motivates you to do some studying of your own. Um, now, the danger with this long series on Catholicism, because I sometimes get passionate, the danger is that it comes across that I like hate all Catholics or, or, or whatever. Uh, that is not the case. If, you know, um, if I you know, someone was a Catholic and wanted to talk about these things, we would have a great time. It, it would um, it would be respectful. It would be a friendly, you know, conversation. But let's let's talk about our differences. Let's be honest. We don't believe the same things. Um, so, you know, when I when I am thinking about who I'm sort of talking against in these episodes, it's not any uh, individual Catholic. It is the institution of the Roman Catholic Church. That's why I've tried to use, you know, when I when I say what the Roman Catholic Church believes, I either use this Catholic Answers, which is a, a very well-known group of Catholic apologists, and oftentimes I've, I've quoted from either the Catechism of the Catholic Church or the, you know, the, the papal encyclicals or the, the church councils. I've tried to give official Roman Catholic um, justification for what I'm saying. 
And so, uh, you know, the, my problem is with the institution of the Roman Catholic Church. My desire is that Christians will deepen their knowledge of the Bible, that they will know and worship God in spirit and in truth, and that they would know the true gospel. I believe the Roman Catholic Church has distorted the gospel. I believe they've added to it. There's there's all these dogmas that we've talked about. We're going to talk about two more today that are binding on the Christian from the Roman Catholic perspective. You have to believe them. And so when you put a, put it at that level, then you know all dogmas that must be believed and that the Roman Catholic Church says are absolutely 100% true and infallible, then it is on the same level as as the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the Trinity. When when you say that Mary is immaculately conceived like we're going to talk about today and that is a dogma, you have to believe it in order to be part of the Roman Catholic Church, then they're putting that on the same level as the Trinity. And so that you know I believe they've added to the gospel. Now, you know, one quick disclaimer, obviously I do not know people's heart and I am not judging um if you know eternal salvation here. That is that is up to God. Uh, so I don't know people's heart, uh, and I do believe that there are professing Catholics. Now, notice I say professing Catholics. They'll say, yeah, I'm a Catholic, um, but what they believe probably doesn't quite line up with what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Uh, I believe that there are professing Catholics that are truly saved. They're true Christians, and I believe that there are professing Protestants that are not truly saved. And so whether you are Catholic or Protestant, if you come across this podcast, I hope it helps you think about why you believe what you believe. Now, you can always connect with me by email, bearchristianity at gmail.com. You can message me on Instagram at the real bear martin. And to close out our session on Catholicism here, I have a little Catholic Protestant joke. So there's a nun who was teaching at a Catholic school, and she asked the children, what do you children want to be when you grow up? Little Susie, she says, I want to be a prostitute. And the nun said, what did you say? And Susie repeated, I want to be a prostitute. Now, the nun was relieved. She said, oh, thank heavens. I thought you said you wanted to be a Protestant. Now, there are four Marian dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church that we talked about the first two last week in last week's episode, that Mary is Theotokos, the mother of God, and that Mary was a perpetual virgin. So you can go back and listen to those if you haven't already. Today, we're talking about the last two, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and then also the Bodily Assumption of Mary. Now, uh, last week, I spent the majority of my time on the perpetual virginity of Mary. It, it's a similar thing today. Most of the time will be spent on the Immaculate Conception. And so if, if <laughs> this episode could be pretty long, I'll just go ahead and tell you. But if it starts getting long, you're like, holy cow, he's already he's only done with one of them, and we've got another one to go. It, the other one, the bodily Assumption of Mary, will be much quicker. Uh, anyway, so let's get started. The Immaculate Conception was defined as a dogma of the Roman Catholic Church in 1854. Think about that. 1854 AD. That's when the Roman Catholic Church says this is something that was absolutely, positively, 
taught by the apostles. Um, so Pope Pius IX, he announced this as a, as a dogma in his papal encyclical Ineffabilis Deus, and I'll leave a link in the episode notes. You can read that for yourself. But here's a quote from that document. It says, We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. Now, that gets a little wordy. And so, in a Catholic Answers tract on the Immaculate Conception and the Bodily Assumption of Mary, um, and I'll refer to this tract a lot today, it says this, quote, The Immaculate Conception is a Catholic dogma that states that Mary, whose conception was brought about the normal way, was conceived without original sin or its stain. That's what immaculate means, without stain, end quote. All right, so some misconceptions about the immaculate conception. You, you may have heard this phrase before, the immaculate conception, and sometimes people will think that, oh, this is another way of referring to Jesus, his virgin birth. No, this is the immaculate conception is something that happened to Mary. Mary was immaculately conceived. She was born uh, without the stain of original sin. So this is not talking about Mary giving birth to Jesus. This is talking about Anne. Catholics call her Saint Anne. That is Mary's mother giving birth to Mary. At Mary's conception, she was free from original sin. That, and again, the Catholic Answers tract says immaculate. That's what immaculate means, without stain. And so Mary was born without the stain of original sin. Now, this does not happen to anybody else. We Adam sinned. Romans 5 tells us that we are all born in sin because of Adam. That's called original sin. But for Mary, that was different. She's born without the stain of original sin. So if you're, if you're thinking biblically here, you may have a few quick objections to the Immaculate Conception. So Mary, right after the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces that she's going to you know, have Jesus as her child, then Mary, it's called Mary's Magnificat. And so Mary calls God her Savior, Luke 1, 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And so the, the argument against Catholicism here would be Mary says that God is her Savior. If she doesn't have sin, if she never sinned, then why would she need a Savior? And so here's the, the Catholic response. You can be saved from sin in a couple of different ways. Uh, for the majority of us, we are sinners and we're saved from the sin we've already committed. Mary was saved from sin, but she was saved in a different way. She was saved before she ever sinned. And so they'll say, imagine there's a, a big pit. Someone, you know, a, a blind man is walking towards that pit if the if a blind man falls in and then someone saves him out of that pit then that's one way that you could save that blind man the other way is to warn them before they ever fall in the pit and so they're saying for for pretty much everybody we fall into the pit of sin and then we are saved from that mary was saved by god saved mary before she ever was stained with original sin and then of course with this mary lived her whole life without any sin and so that's what Catholics believe. 
Now, Romans 3.23, another quick objection here is Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there are two different Catholic responses here. Uh, they'll say Romans 3.23, that refers to actual sin. So there's there's two categories of sin when, when they're talking about this. They'll say there's original sin, the stain of original sin, and then there's actual sin. So this Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've heard Catholics say this would exclude infants because Romans 9.11 says that Jacob and Esau, before they were born and had done nothing good or bad. And so they'll say there's, there's, this is not talking about infants or uh, children in the womb that have done nothing good or bad. This Romans 3.23, it, it, could, it, it excludes Mary because she didn't have original sin. Also, Romans 3.23 excludes Jesus. Jesus was truly a man. So it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Obviously, this does not apply to Jesus. And Catholics will say Jesus was the new or the second Adam. And again, that's in Romans 5. And then... It's not taught in the Bible, but it's sort of, uh, Catholics will say, because Jesus was the the second Adam, they, they would say Mary is the new Eve or like the second Eve. And again, Eve did not have original sin either. So it's not a biblical argument. They can't give you a verse. They're just saying it's fitting. And that's going to come up over and over again, this this fit it's fitting for Mary to to be without sin because if Jesus is the new Adam, Mary is the new Eve. She she didn't have original sin either. Now this second Eve concept comes from Genesis three fifteen. It said and and this is after Adam and Eve have sinned, God is pronouncing curses on the serpent on Eve and on Adam. And so in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, that is, he's talking to the serpent here, Satan, you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the Catholic Answers tract, How to Defend the Immaculate Conception by Jimmy Aiken, uh, he says this, quote, and it's a, a lengthy quote here. He says, in Genesis 3.15, God states that there is to be an enmity between woman and the serpent, and this enmity is shared between her seed and its seed. Her seed is the Messiah who stands in opposition to the seed of the serpent. The mother of the Messiah is said to share the same enmity, total opposition, with Satan. If Mary, the woman, had any sin, then she would not be in complete opposition to the devil. Some argue that the woman refers to Eve, but this cannot be the complete meaning of the text, as Eve is always associated with her collaboration with the serpent, not her opposition to him. Only Mary, the new Eve, fits the description of the woman in Genesis 3.15, end quote. Now, th this Genesis 3.15 passage has been used for a while by Catholics um, to uh, bolster their beliefs about Mary. Uh, one of the issues, though, is for a long time, the Latin Vulgate was the official Bible translation for the Roman Catholic Church. But there's an error in the translation. In Genesis 3.15, this same verse, in the Latin Vulgate, it's it's I'm, obviously it's in Latin, I'm translating into English, but it says this, I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. And so in, instead of the, the masculine, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the Latin Vulgate, it's feminine. 
he, uh, excuse me, she shall crush thy head and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. So it was a mistranslation that's later been corrected. And so in the encyclical document, Ineffabilis Deus, by Pope Pius IX, uh, this is a, a quote from that document. He's going to refer to this mistranslation. Now, surely the Pope would would know, you know, what the Bible truly says, um, but he's going to refer to this mistranslation because at that time the Latin Vulgate was the the uh, translation that was being used. It says this quote: Just as Christ, the mediator between God and man, assumed human nature, blotted the handwriting of the decree that stood against us, and fastened it triumphant to the cross, so the most holy virgin united with him by a most intimate and indissoluble bond was with him and through him eternally at enmity with the evil serpent, and most completely triumphed over him, and thus crushed his head with her immaculate foot." End quote. So th- this uh, Catholics have taught for a while that this Genesis 3.15 verse teaches that Mary is is also in total opposition to Satan, and it, this couldn't be any other woman besides Mary because she didn't have any sin. Therefore, she could be in total opposition to him, just like Jesus was in total opposition to Satan. Anyone else who sins is a is sort of in league, in collaborating in a way with Satan. They are under the um, they are under they're enslaved to sin, and and thus to Satan would be the thought there. Now, uh, another a verse that Catholics will use to justify their their claim that Mary was immaculately conceived is the greeting that a, that Gabriel gives to Mary uh, when he tells her she's going to have a child. Luke one twenty eight, and he came to her and said, "Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you." Now, favored here, Catholics will say this is a perfect passive participle. So I'm going to go through what all of those mean, but the the Greek word used there is kakaratomene, and the root of that word is karatao, and that's the verb form, karatao. The noun is charis, and that is the noun, that's the word for grace. And so Ephesians 2.8, for by grace or charis, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Uh, now, that could also be translated, the same Greek word could be translated favor. So just a few verses down from this Luke one twenty eight, in Luke one thirty, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor or charis with God. Now, this karatao, the verb form, or charis, does not mean sinless. Okay, we are sinners. We are given grace by God. We are shown favor by God. It is something God doesn't have to show us. It, it, it is it is something because we are sinners, and God has granted us, has given us grace. Now, a participle is sometimes called a verbal adjective, and so an example would be. Greetings, walking man. So the the man is is a doing a verb. He is he is walking, but we're we're talking about a person. So greetings, walking man. The man who is doing the walking. And so a, an over translation of this Luke one twenty eight would be greetings, one who has been given grace or. Greetings, one who has been given favor by God. That would be kind of an over-translation of what Gabriel is saying to Mary here. So 
It's a participle. It's also passive. And so a, a passive is not something that you are actively doing. It, has been, it, it is being done to you. And so a, a, because this is a passive word, the grace has been given to Mary. It's not something Mary did. It's something God did for her or gave to her. So Mary didn't deserve or earn this grace. Uh, Mary is not active in obtaining it. It has been given to her. And then the last part of it is, it, I've said, it is a perfect passive participle. So the perfect tense here, uh, Bill Mounts, who teaches, a, uh, teaches biblical Greek, and I have a few of his books and have kind of worked through some of those. And so I've got this definition from here. He says, the perfect tense describes an action that was fully completed and has consequences at the time of speaking. The most popular example of a perfect tense is in John 19.30, when Jesus had this, Jesus is on the cross, and when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So that word for it is finished, that's tetelestai, that's a, a, a perfect tense, and it means that a work was completed on the cross at that moment in time, there was something that was completed, but it still has consequences today. So Jesus says it is finished, but when we read that today, that it's it's the perfect tense is a deeper meaning than oh something happened in the past. That would be the aorist tense. It's just something simple that happened in the past. But the perfect tense brings out a, a little bit of a richer meaning. It is this happened, but it still has consequences today. And uh, of course, we would affirm, yes, you know, Jesus said it is finished, the debt is paid. Um, uh, his work on the cross has consequences for us today. So tetelestai, that, that is a, a perfect tense word there. So Catholics will take all of this together. This word karatao, meaning grace or favor, and then it's, it's in the form of it is a perfect passive participle. And they'll say, Mary has always been favored because it's perfect, so that something that happened in the past, which still carried on and applied to her, um, you know, throughout her whole life. And so she has always been favored. She is without original sin. And surely this would be fitting, right? That's that's the Catholic argument. Surely the mother of the Son of God would be sinless. Now, Mary is not required to be sinless. Original sin is through Adam. And that's why Jesus was born without original sin, because he was not his. Uh, he was born of a virgin. He did. If he, if Joseph and Mary would have had sexual relations, and Jesus was the product of that, then that child would have had original sin. The the sin. The way God has told us, the way the Bible tells us that this original sin is passed on is through Adam. And so that's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. So it's not required that Mary is sinless. Catholics are professing that that she was sinless, but from a biblical standpoint, it's not required. She doesn't have to be sinless in order to give birth to Jesus. Now, in response to the, the Catholic argument using this perfect passive participle, um, I, again, I'm not a Greek expert. The, the My main source in this response here is from Dr. James White. I've mentioned him a, a ton of times. Um, he wrote a book called The Roman Catholic Controversy that I've, that I've used a lot. Anyway, he has taught 
Greek for years, and he's also taught church history, so he knows what he's talking about with the the Greek language. Uh, But this is also just the classic Protestant defense. So I've heard other people, um, you know, use the same verses and the same line of argumentation against Catholics. So first off, let's talk about the root of this perfect passive participle. The root is the verb karatao. Now, this verb, this word is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All right, so so that's the, the uh, karatao verb there. Now, karatao alone cannot be used to defend Mary's immaculate conception because right here, this same word is used talking about all believers. And so if, if, if this word is applied to all believers, surely not all of us were immaculately conceived. And so that's where you have to bring in, or that's where Catholics will try to bring in the, the perfect passive participle issues. So it's not necessarily the, the word karatao that means immaculately conceived, but when you put it together with a perfect passive participle, that, that's how they, they get their, um, their view that Mary is, is immaculately conceived. Now, the issue is that you can find examples of perfect passive participles that apply to all believers as well, and it is not something that that has to mean that it goes back to before they were born. Ephesians 2.5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and I'm inserting the word God here just so it, it flows with the context, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. That's a perfect passive participle. You have been saved. You, you get the passive part of it there, that it is that it's something that's being done to us. We are being saved. It's not that we are saving ourselves. And so that's the, the passive aspect there. And then they, the, uh, Paul is using the perfect tense. You have been saved. Now, just a few verses down, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, that's a perfect passive participle in both those cases, have been saved. Now, this doesn't mean always, but from before birth, you have been saved. It, it the, ver- the context there, Paul says, in you were by nature children of wrath, that you were dead in trespasses. And so the perfect passive participle does not mean before birth. You, so there's nothing in, the, in Gabriel's message to Mary that says that before you were ever born, Mary, you know, you were given this, this special grace by God that kept you free from all original sin, um, sin and any stain of sin. There's nothing there that means before birth. It only means that sometime in the past. So it could be at age 12 for Mary. It could be moments before Gabriel came and gave the message to Mary. Uh, there's nothing that, that, that implies there that Mary is without original sin or that she was born any different than any other woman has been born. So then it it all falls back. The Immaculate Conception all falls back on this, well, it's just fitting for the mother of the Son of God to be without any stain of sin. It's it's fitting. Listen to this quote from Jimmy Aiken. Again, he's a Roman Catholic apologist from Catholic Answers. Quote, 
Over the centuries, the fathers and doctors of the church spoke often about the fittingness of the privilege of Mary's immaculate conception. The dogma is especially fitting when one examines the honor that was given to the Ark of the Covenant. It contained the manna, which is bread from heaven, stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, and the staff of Aaron, an instrument of Israel's redemption. If this box was created with such honor to carry a stick, some bread, and some and stone tablets, how much more should Mary be a worthy dwelling place for God himself? She is the new Ark of the Covenant because she carried the real bread from heaven, the Word of God, and the instrument of our redemption, which is Jesus' body. Now, this gets into typology. And so, uh, so let's talk about that just a little bit. A bear's biscuit for you. Here's a, a little treat, a recommendation for you. I would say this is probably one of the more important videos that I've come across in my study of Roman Catholicism. It's by Mike Winger, and I'll leave a, a YouTube link. I, I've come across his videos before, and I, I've watched some of them, but I really have not used him as a source in in any of these episodes on Roman Catholicism. This video, however, is fantastic. And what you're going to see is that, I, again, I've not really used him as a source, but as he's walking through uh, some of these typology arguments that the Roman Catholic Church makes, you'll see us, we, we say a lot of the same things. And that was encouraging to me as I was watching this video because um, here, you know, I haven't really used him as a source yet. He's coming to the same conclusions that I'm coming to as I'm studying all this stuff. But he does a really good job of teaching you how to um, how to find typology in the Bible and some some guide rails to keep you from just going wild with it. And obviously, we would he and I would both argue that the Roman Catholic Church is going wild with it. So the video is called Catholic Apologists Abuse Scripture to Teach Mariology. Now, typology is something in the Old Testament, which is a symbol or type of something in the New Testament. So a great example, it would be the Passover lamb in the Old Testament is a type of Jesus, who is the true Passover lamb, and that's taught in the New Testament. So again, I highly recommend this video because it it helps you know okay this is something that I'm that I'm finding when I'm studying the Bible that I I think there's something to this the Holy Spirit gave us this in the Old Testament and it is used to to bolster our view in the New Testament and then sometimes you know there may be some some typology that it's like well that's that's probably you're probably going down the wrong track here and so he uh, he makes a lot of really good recommendations on how to make sure you're you're interpreting the bible correctly now the catholics try to defend this idea that mary is the new ark of the covenant and some of their argumentation sounds quite impressive until you check out the verses and the context for yourself, which how many times have I said that? When when Catholics go to the Bible, they love to go to a little set of verses, you know, find what, the, you know, use what they need, and then and then hope, basically hope you don't look up the rest of it. And so um, in a Catholic Answers article, Mary, the Ark of the Covenant by Steve Ray, uh, he uses a, a few verses here. So in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38, I'm just going to kind of summarize it here. I'm not going to read it all, but Moses has finished the tabernacle 
and and he's putting everything in place just as God commanded. And then after that is all done, it says that the glory cloud of God filled the tabernacle. Literally, the word is overshadowed the tabernacle. So they'll say, you know, compare this to the Holy Spirit. In, in Luke one thirty five, Gabriel says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, Mary. And and so they're saying, see the the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and Mary is overshadowed. Again, it, it doesn't really, it, the Ark of the Covenant is in the tabernacle, but this word, this is talking about the whole tabernacle, not just the Ark of the Covenant. In Matthew 17, 5, the glory cloud of God overshadows Peter, James, and John during the transfiguration. Now, so, so you know, Catholics will say, see, the, the Ark of the Covenant or the tabernacle was overshadowed by the glory cloud, and Mary was overshadowed. Therefore, she's the Ark of the Covenant in, in the New Testament. But Peter, James, and John were overshadowed. Why aren't they the Ark of the Covenant? Now, here's a quote from Steve Ray, again, in this Catholic Answers article, Mary, the Ark of the Covenant. Quote, God was very specific about every exact detail of the ark. It was a place where God himself would dwell. God wanted his words inscribed on stone, housed in a perfect container covered with pure gold within and without. How much more would he want his word, Jesus, to have a perfect dwelling place? If the only begotten son were to take up residence in the womb of a human girl, would he not make her flawless? Again, do you hear the fitting argument? It's fitting for Mary to be without stain. Um, Also, Steve Ray says, it was a place where God himself would dwell. Now, this is tricky language by Steve Ray because God did not dwell inside the Ark of the Covenant. He's, tr- he's trying to make this comparison of Mary's womb to being like the Ark of the Covenant. And he says God dwelled, his language seems to indicate God dwelled inside the Ark of the Covenant. That's not true. The mercy seat was, was a lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And in Exodus 25, 22, God says, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God would come and, and meet with them and his presence, so to speak, would be above the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat, the lid. And that's where the two cherubim, the two angels had their, their wings sort of covering over and, and God would come and meet with them there. Not he, God was not inside the Ark of the Covenant. Like they were carrying around God all through the wilderness. The, the glory cloud by day and the fire by night was over top of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. God was not inside the Ark of the Covenant. God is not contained in a box, okay? Another Ark of the Covenant and it equals Mary type of argument is when, when we talk about David in the Old Testament, um, when the Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem, and then Elizabeth when Mary comes to visit her. So Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. She was about you know about six months pregnant when Mary visited her, and again she's pregnant with John the Baptist. And so Catholics will use these following verses. It's Luke one forty one through forty four. 
And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Now, Catholics will say Luke is obviously making this connection between Mary and the Ark of the Covenant back in the Old Testament. In Luke one forty three. and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Catholics will point out the phrase, come to me. David in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 6, 9, he says, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? So the, this, there's the connection there. Elizabeth says, why is it that the, the mother of my Lord should come to me? And David says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now, the, <laughs> again, you, ju- you just got to go back and read the context, okay? Remember a few episodes ago, I talked about Uzzah. Um, God, said, God told the nation of Israel to carry the ark of the, the covenant on specific poles. And instead, in order to transport the ark of the covenant, they built a cart. And the, the oxen stumble and the, the cart sort of sways a little bit and the Ark of the Covenant is going to fall off the cart. And so Uzzah reached out and touched the Ark to keep it from falling off of the cart. And God killed him. Now, as a side note, they'll say Catholics will say, Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. She's holy, set aside for God. So Joseph wouldn't dare touch Mary in any sort of sexual way after she gave birth to the Son of God. So that, that's a perpetual vir- virginity argument that they'll use. Um, just like Uzzah was killed for touching the ark, Joseph didn't dare think about touching Mary in that way. Anyway, that's the context of this of these verses when when David's talking about should the you know will the ark of the covenant come to me? So Second Samuel six verses seven through eleven, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez. Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed Edom and all his household. So David is afraid and does not take the ark of the Lord back to the city of David. Not yet. And so, so you know, compare this. This is so deceiving by Steve Ray. The, the article by, by Catholic Answers, it, he quotes this, quote, When David saw the ark, he rejoiced and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Elizabeth uses almost the same words. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Luke is telling us something, drawing our minds back to the Old Testament, showing us a parallel. Now, that is that is deceptive. He says, when David saw the ark of the Lord, he rejoiced and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Just like Elizabeth rejoiced. That is not, that is not what the Bible says. 2 Samuel 6, verses 9 and 10, and, the, and David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. So that is just plain deception there in this Catholic Answers article. That David did not rejoice at this. 
Now, Another argument is that Elizabeth said the baby, John the Baptist, leapt for joy in her womb. And so the Catholics will say, go back to 2 Samuel 6. Eventually, David does bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and and David is leaping and dancing uh, as the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to Jerusalem. The, the issue is if Luke, you know, Catholics say Luke was clearly trying to make this connection from Mary to the Ark of the Covenant. If Luke was trying to make this connection, we can't be sure of that because he doesn't even use the same Greek words that are found in the Septuagint. Another way that Catholics will try to say Mary is the Ark of the Covenant is because if you remember from the verses I read earlier, the Ark was sent to Obed-Edom for three months and Mary stayed uh, three months with Elizabeth. Now, the only similarity here is a three-month period. If we compare Elizabeth, the account of Elizabeth taking in Mary to David, remember David sent it away for three months, and Elizabeth took Mary in for three months. So this is this is not the same. You can't be making these these typology arguments from just uh, you know three months and the the phrase "come to me" and those type of things. It, it's it's weak when you look at the context here. And I do not think that Luke was trying to somehow relate to us that Mary is the Ark of the Covenant. We never have any you know New Testament author making that connection at all. So the whole Mary equals the Ark of the Covenant in the New Testament uh, type of argument is extremely forced. The Roman Catholic Church wants to see Mary as the Ark because it, it, it helps to strengthen some of their claims about Mary, and so now we have to go and find it in Scripture somewhere. Now, a, a quick deviation here, Mary is also called the Queen of Heaven. And so, you know, the Catholic Church, they pray to Mary for her to mediate for them. Um, if Jesus is the King and you know, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then surely Mary is the Queen, right? And so here's another type typology uh, argument. They'll say that just like Bathsheba was the mother of Solomon, and so when Solomon became um, king Bathsheba is essentially the queen. Um, they'll they'll try to use that this this Bathsheba and Solomon to Mary and Jesus. So let's look at this context. This is found in in First Kings chapter two. Um, a man named Adonijah comes to Bathsheba. Now, uh, just some background. Adonijah before Solomon became became king. Adonijah tried to to take the kingdom for himself, um, but Solomon was the one. God promised David that Solomon would be king, and so Solomon was the one anointed as king. So Adonijah is a risk for trying to overthrow Solomon, basically. Okay, so this so Adonijah comes to Bathsheba and ask her to ask Solomon. So so this is where Catholics get the idea that we sh- we could pray to Mary and Mary will ask Jesus, you know, Mary will sort of mediate f- for us to Jesus. And how could Jesus say no to his mother? You know, that's that's kind of the the argument. So Adonijah comes to Bathsheba and says, "Hey, will you go to Solomon for me and ask him to give me Abishag for a wife, all right? 1 Kings 2, 19 and 20. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on the behalf of Adonijah, and the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. So Catholics will say, see how see how um, Solomon honored his mother, just like Jesus would honor his mother Mary, all right? And I'm going to keep going with the Bible verse. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought 
for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. So Solomon sits on his throne and then has another throne brought in for Bathsheba to sit right beside him. So, so, you know, just like Jesus rules, Mary is right there, you know, interceding for us right beside Jesus, just like Bathsheba and Solomon. All right, I'm going to keep reading. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me, okay? And the king said to her, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. All right, this is sounding pretty good from, from the Catholic's perspective, right? Um, somebody goes to Bathsheba. Hey, please ask Solomon this for me. Bathsheba goes up to Solomon. He greets her. He bows to her. He shows her honor. He brings in a throne to sit beside uh, him. And then he says, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. Okay, this is, this is wonderful for Catholics. And they're saying, see there, see, see how all this makes sense? Now, the, let's go to the rest of the story, all right? 1 Kings 2, verses 21 through 25. She said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, and why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So the king Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. All right, this, <laughs> this is hardly a representation of what Catholics profess about Mary's intercessory prayer. Let me, let me read you, I've read this prayer the last three episodes. This is a prayer to Mary, a, a mother of perpetual help, okay? This is a prayer, quote, For if you protect me, dear mother, I fear nothing, not from my sins, because you will obtain for me the pardon of them, nor from the devils, because you are more powerful than all hell together, nor even from Jesus, my judge, because one prayer from you, he will be appeased. So Adonijah says, Bathsheba, will you ask Solomon a question for me? Bathsheba says, yes, I'll do it. And she goes up to Solomon. He bows to her. He brings in a throne and he says, ask me anything, mother, and I will not refuse you. Then Bathsheba asks him for something. And what does he do? He puts the guy to death. He executes him. And so this is, <laughs> this is not a, a typology type argument where you can say, Mary is obviously the queen of heaven, just like Bathsheba was the queen. And you know Solomon wouldn't refuse her, just like Jesus wouldn't refuse Mary. Just keep reading, people. Just keep reading the Bible when you, when you hear claims like this. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time on this Mary Ark of the Covenant thing, but but hopefully that that helps you as you're um as you're studying the Bible and and trying to make these connections and seeing when we can believe and when we cannot. Again, I highly recommend watching that Mike Winger YouTube video. Now, the last one on Mary and the Ark of the Covenant in Revelation 11:19, it says this, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So Catholics will say, see, the Ark of the Covenant is now in heaven. Mary is the Ark. So Mary must have been bodily assumed into heaven. 
And so the next verse begins chapter 12, which speaks of a woman about to give birth. Now, if you read Revelation chapter 12, the majority of scholars going to this passage will say this is this woman about to give birth is symbolic of the nation of Israel, not specifically Mary. But Catholics want it to be Mary because they've they've got their own things they got to find in the Bible. So this leads us into the last of the Marian dogmas, the bodily assumption of Mary. Now, in this was by Pope Pius the Twelfth. And this was made a dogma in 1950, okay? 1950, 1950 years AD, that's when the Catholic Church decided to proclaim that the apostles taught that Mary was immaculate, or excuse me, bodily assumed into heaven. So it's from the papal encyclical Munificentissimus Deus, and uh, quote, Mary, after the completion of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into the glory of heaven. Now, the Roman Catholic Church does not specify if Mary died or not. It's very vague language. So some Catholics believe he, she died and then her body and soul was assumed and were assumed into heaven. Others believe that that she did not die; she was just kind of a, just taken up into heaven. Now, a Catholic answers uh, the Catholic answer tract I've mentioned before: Immaculate Conception and Assumption. It says this quote: "The Assumption is the doctrine that says that at the end of her life on earth, Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven, just as Enoch, Elijah, and perhaps others had been before her." Some people think Catholics believe Mary ascended into heaven. That is not correct. Christ, by his own power, ascended into heaven. Mary was assumed or taken up into heaven by God. She didn't do it under her own power, end quote. All right, so uh, remember the Roman Catholic claims this is ap- they are they are teaching apostolic tradition, and there's this huge emphasis on Mary. We have now these four Marian dogmas, and I would just say, where is all? Th- where is this emphasis on Mary in Scripture? We have minimal information about Mary in in the Bible. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number nine sixty six. Finally, the Immaculate Virgin preserved free from all stain of original sin when the course of her earthly life was finished was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things so that she might be more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of lords and conqueror of sin and death. The assumption of the Blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. So Catholics will say when we die, and, and Protestants believe this as well, when we die, our physical body is buried, or or whatever happened to our physical body when we died, that, that's where that's what happened to it. Um, but in Catholic theology, the spirit goes to heaven, purgatory, or hell, and then at the final resurrection, our body will be reunited with our spirit. So this is where the bodily assumption of Mary comes into play. Mary's body was immediately assumed into heaven. And so her spirit is not in heaven waiting to be reunited with her resurrected body. It was immediately assumed. She she was assumed body and soul into heaven together. From a Catholic Answers tract, quote, But there is more than just fittingness. After all, if Mary is immaculately conceived, then it would follow that she would not suffer the corruption in the grave, which is a consequence of 
sin. And so here we go with the fittingness argument again. If it, if it's fitting for Mary to be sinless, no origin, you know, no stain of sin, and so because she's sinless, it's also fitting that that her body didn't have to suffer corruption in the grave. So therefore, she was bodily assumed. You can see how the, as the Marian dogmas progress, as we get further and further away from the time of Christ, the Catholic Church starts starts you know, saying that these things are dogma, you have to believe them, and there's just very, very little support um, for for these dogmas. So there is no direct teaching from Scripture that I can interact with. With the Immaculate Conception, they had, um, you know, gr- the greeting from Gabriel, you, know, you are favored. I talked about the perfect passive participle stuff. There's just really nothing in Scripture to interact with. It, it's just fitting type arguments that, that Catholics are making. Um, again, I've talked about this already. Mary is the Ark of the Covenant, and in Revelation 11, we see the Ark in heaven, and so Mary must be in heaven. Um, again, there's many interpretations to these passages, but the Catholic Church says, "Nope, we are correct. You must believe it. It's a dogma." You, you know, so this they're taking very vague passages in Scripture and then just asserting this absolute certainty on them. Um, in a in a this concluding section, I've mentioned. This uh, Catholic Answers tract, Immaculate Conception and Assumption, in a concluding section, it says this, There is no problem with the church defining a doctrine that is not explicitly in Scripture, so long as it does not contradict Scripture. The Catholic Church was commissioned by Christ to teach all nations infallibly until the end of the world. Now listen to this next quote, because this is the one of the last things that I'll say on Roman Catholicism, and I have been saying this all along, and here we have it right from their very lips. Quote, The mere fact that the church teaches that something is definitely true is a guarantee that it is true. Okay? Basically, they're saying if the church if the church teaches it's true, it's a guarantee that it absolutely is true. Whatever the church says is true is true. All right, let me read that again. The mere fact that the church teaches that something is definitely true is a guarantee that it is true. The mere fact, if the church teaches it, it is true. Don't even question it. Why would you even think to question it? If the church said it, it is true, positive, 100%. And and that there it is, sola Ecclesia. We we don't go to Scripture to see truth. We just trust the church. If the church says it's true, you don't even have to look at Scripture because the church tells you what you're going to find in Scripture. They tell you what you're going to find in church history. They tell you what you must believe. And so that's that's been my massive complaint all along with the Roman Catholic Church. In closing, the New Testament never exalts Mary the way that the Roman Catholic Church does. We are never told to pray uh, for Mary's intercession for us. Uh, you know, Mary is worthy of honor. She was obedient in a tough situation. I've mentioned this before. So Protestants honor Mary. I, I am not, not trying to disrespect Mary in any way, but when we elevate Mary above what we're taught in Scripture, that is a problem. And and I believe that a lot of Catholics are are into idolatry with Mary. Now they again, they would never say that it's idolatrous because they try to distinguish between the hyperdulia given to Mary versus the the latria type of worship that is only due to God. 
Um, but you just read some of the prayers and the things that they that that they say to Mary. It's it's borderline, if not just absolute idolatry. So uh, again, I be- I believe Mary should be honored as a believer who was obedient. It- it's interesting to me that in Hebrews eleven you have what's called the Hall of Faith, and and Mary is not mentioned there. I'm not saying Mary wasn't faithful. I'm not saying we shouldn't honor her. I'm just saying the author of Hebrews, if if this if all this stuff about Mary was apostolic tradition, if truly the apostles honored Mary the way that the Roman Catholic Church says we should honor her. Then why don't we why don't we find any of any of this about Mary? She just she's not mentioned in the New Testament in places that you would think someone with such magnificent honor would be mentioned. Let me give you a few verses just to to close this out and and just think about what I've said with all the Marian dogmas and then listen to these verses. And this these are both quotes by Jesus, okay? Matthew 12, 46 through 50. I've already mentioned this in previous episodes. While he was still speaking to the people, that is Jesus, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Luke 11, verses 27 and 28. And he and as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, that is, but Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 